We continue the, today um, in our series um, on more that we began last week. I don't know that I need that, but I'm going to pick it up just in case I do need that later. Um, we began last week with this theme of, uh, of more and how we learn, how we grow, how we find the more that we really need in life and that our hearts really seek uh, in life. Uh, this past week, there was a, a uh, sheriff in uh, near Detroit, Michigan, who uh, was out on patrol and he noticed uh, something unusual about a police car that he thought was a police car that he was following. And he was doing, looking at the, at the, at the vehicle and just noticed some, a few different things. It was marked up as a police vehicle. It had all the right things on it, you would think, for a police vehicle, but there were just little things that began to catch his attention, and so he, he pulled over, uh, the sheriff pulled over the police car, and uh, he approached the guy at the, uh, at the window, and um, the police officer's response to the guy was, well, who are you? Uh, to which the sheriff replied, well, I'm the sheriff. Who are you? Um, that began a long conversation in which when a man was arrested, taken to prison, or to jail, not prison, to jail, and an investigation ensued as, as the guy claimed to just kind of be a Batman guy out there helping the police out, which uh, I don't know that they need that or not, but uh, uh, he, he will get in some trouble for that. But the question that the sheriff um, asked him is the question that I want us to think about today. It's that question of, well, who are you? you? Who are you? Um, when we think about this whole idea of calling in our life, of finding more of Christ at work and leading and at work fulfilling our life, I think very much it begins with this whole idea of answering the question of who are you? Oftentimes when we think of calling, though, in the Bible, um, or in life in general, we think, well, what's God's calling on my life? And oftentimes we automatically skip to, well, what should I do? Where do I need to go? And we skip to the action part of that. Um, but the Bible is always wants us to start with where we're going to begin today. It's the, it's the idea of being. It's the idea of, of knowing who you are first. And so we're going to unpack that idea here today. If you weren't with us last week, this, this whole series, this whole idea is based on two truths and, and a struggle of the heart, an emotion, a, a wrestling of the heart. The two biblical truths I'll show you and to remind you of them. The first was from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, where Paul wrote, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That God has prepared these things, that he's inviting us into this life where he is, we are his workmanship. We are the product of all of his work through his grace and through his word and through his son in our life. And, and the overflow of that is this life of, of, of service, is this life of, of difference making as we do out, live out the good works that he has prepared for us. The, other, the second verse was this one from John 10, 10. It says where Jesus says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. So there's really two parties that work in the world, right? Satan, the devil, is out to, to steal and kill and destroy. And, and, but yet Jesus is the second agent in the world who says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. So Jesus has come that we might have this life. And, and again, when you think that full life, don't, don't go to your bank account. Don't go to that stuff, the physical things that are going to fade. Um, go to your soul. Go to this level of fulfillment and, and this soul level uh, enrichment that God and Jesus wants to work out our life as we follow him, as we listen to him, and, and as we know him. And so those are the two biblical ideas that are kind of behind this. But this, path, this sermon series is also based upon a struggle of our heart that we all wrestle with. All of us wrestle, as we called it last week, like a holy discontentedness, um, a holy dissatisfaction with life that just sometimes you get to the end of things and you think, well, is that all there is? 
Is there more to this life than just, okay, I made it to the job I wanted, or I got the house I wanted, or I got the car I wanted, or I got the new thing, or I I achieved this thing? Uh, Is there more than just that? And that's where Jesus is inviting us. I think uh, we are wired to have a, a dissatisfaction with the things of this world so that we might turn our eyes to look towards the Lord who has this deeper connection, this more soul-satisfying way of life for us. And so last week, we, we kind of phrased, if we're going to find a solution, if we're going to apply those two verses, we're going to find a solution to this lack of fulfillment that we have in our life, we said there are three questions that we always have to be asking of ourselves in relation with God. And we use them, these three little two-letter words, uh, the word be, do, and go, um, and, and asking the question, well, what has God made me to be, or who has, called, who has God called me to be? Um, and we're going to look at that both as an individual level, but also as a, as a part of a body kind of level, and we're going to look at that today. Be, but who has God called me, what has called, called me to do? So because of who I am, what does God call me to do? And then ultimately, where does God call me to do those things? That's the go part of this. And so we're going to look at this every week, be, do, go, because I think the more we ingrain that into our minds, then the more that I wake up every morning and I ask myself the question, well, God, what have you called me to be today? And God, what have you called me to do because of who I am in you? And then where would you have me engage in that today? And again, don't assume that God's going to send you across the border. He may, and that may be a wonderful thing. But a God wants to be doing all of that in your workplace, in your home, in your life, in your neighborhood, in your school. He wants you to be thinking through that, of this be, do, go process every day. And so calling really comes from answering those questions of be, do, and go. And so when we pursue, we said last week, this is the end of my review, we said last week that if we do those things, if we're engaged in that process, there is a sweet spot that our life moves into, that we begin to engage in that. And I didn't bring my baseball bat back, but I did find a baseball in my office this week. I'll use this today. But if you and I were to go play baseball, right, if, if I was to throw you a, a, an easy pitch to hit, which is the only pitch I could throw you, um, if your bat made contact with this ball in that sweet spot of the bat, that part, it's, it's built, it's everything, physic, the physics of it all, you're going to get the maximum impact of that. Um, there's more fulfillment out of that. And uh, if you hit the baseball uh, right in the sweet spot of the, ba- the ball with the bat in the sweet spot of the bat, um, you're going to get maximum impact out of that. And so the same thing as we look at this whole idea of be and do and go, if we're leaning into that, asking ourselves those questions, processing that in our life on a regular basis, um, we're going to find our lives moving into the direction of, of a sweet spot where uh, I'm thinking, okay, God, both, uh, God, what have you called me to be? And I'm leaning into that, and I'm learning from that, and I'm growing into that. God, what do you want me to be doing? And I'm doing those things. And God, where do you want me to be going with this? Uh, and you're going to, God's going to begin to open up things, and you're going to find your life a deeper level of fulfillment. Um, and some of that holy discontentedness begins to diminish because we're finding we're in line with who God is, what God is trying to do in the world, and that always brings a sense of satisfaction to us in life, all right? And so, uh, be, do, and go. Um, and so today, we're going to look at the word be. We're going to look at this word be, this whole idea of, of the fullness of Jesus, um, and, and this is where this all begins, all right? And, and I want to emphasize this again. I think I said it a moment ago, but I want to emphasize this idea again, that before you get to do and go, you have to start with be, before you, you wake up and say, we all want, well, God, just tell me what to do. What job should I take? Who should I marry? All those questions that we wrestle with throughout our life. What do you want me to do, God? God's biggest question in your life is not about doing and going. 
His biggest issue in your life is he wants you to be something. He wants you to be first. Because if he has you at B, if he has you at this level of you're just trying to be his day in, day out, the doing and the going, those take care of themselves pretty simply uh, as you follow that. And so we're going to look at how the fullness of Jesus really grows into our life as we be a disciple. And so if you're a Christian here today, um, and you must ask, well, what's God's calling on my life? The calling for every one of you, regardless of your gifting, your talents, your age, your wealth, anything, uh, your intelligence, whatever it may be, if you're a Christian, the thing that God's calling over your life holds first is this idea, just be a disciple. The thing that God calls you to do, every one of you, if you're a Christian, is to be a disciple. And there's just this being that God calls upon us. And, and really this question of being a disciple answers the question of, well, who am I? And if you answer the question of who am I with, I'm a disciple of Jesus who is learning and growing, following, being loved by Jesus, loving Jesus, growing in this relationship, there is fruit that comes out of this. And I love this question that comes from the book that we're kind of taking this from by Todd Wilson, um, that he says this, that calling is found in our core identity overflowing into action. And I like that phrase, because if I understand who I am, that I am a disciple of Jesus, and I'm trying to be like Jesus in my life. So much of the calling of my life is just going to overflow from, well, this is who I am. This is, I am a follower of Jesus. And the overflow of that produces a lot of doing and going and fruits. And so calling begins not by knowing three things to go do. Those, those will come later. But calling always begins in the Bible by underscoring um, who God is, who I am, and maybe with that, who I'm not, okay? And so we want to look at that today. We want to unpack that idea today that God desires that we not just go do and go, but that God wants us to, to be. Um, God wants us always to be committed to cultivating the disciple part of me where I am learning and I am seeking and I am repenting and I'm obeying and I'm listening and I'm sharing and I'm just walking with him day by day in my life. And so that's what we want to look at today. And, and I'm going to go ahead and give you my three points. So if you want to write them down and check out for the next 10 minutes, you can do that. Um, don't, I encourage you not to. I prefer you not. But if I'm going to, get it, I'm going to put my cards on the table here first, all right? So uh, they're not impressive cards, but I'm going to put them out there anyway, okay? Um, here's the three things. I think if we're going to grow in this whole idea of being and identifying with this whole idea of being, Here's the three things that I need to wrestle with, and there's probably many more, but for the sake of our purposes today, I want to start with these. Number one, I have to wrestle with the idea that I am seconds. Number two, I need to process the idea that I am surrounded. And number three, it starts with a key yes, okay? And so um, as you jot, I'll put those back on the screen as we go through here, but I want you to just kind of see where we're going with this uh, because those, that process, that movement in our life, I think is going to always help us to grow this area of being his disciple. And so if I'm going to move um, into more of what Jesus has for me and you and your life, then I have to find my place in the world, and I think we find that by this little process. And so... Um, Let's start with the first one here. Let's start with whole, this whole idea uh, of I am second, all right? I'm second. Um, the verse that I want us to kind of build this off of is in Matthew chapter 4, verse 19. This is a bigger verse that Jesus says, 
to his disciples, to Peter, James, John, others, come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And, and that's a great verse, but I want to just look at the first three verses because those are the hard ones. Come and follow me. Now, I don't know if you like to follow um, or if you like to be like the person in charge, um, but it's, there's a part of all of us that wrestles with that little word of following, right? I'm glad to walk alongside of Jesus. That way we're, we're equals. I'm, it's even better if I can be the leader and Jesus follows me because Jesus is pretty helpful in a crisis, right? And if I get myself in a bad pickle, it's good to have Jesus to pull out of the back pocket and say, okay, Jesus, fix this. And then when we're done, I'll put you back there and I'll take off until the next crisis, I'll pull you back out and you'll follow me. But that's not the way this works with Jesus. Jesus always is trying to remind us, throughout Scripture, not just Jesus, Scripture is always trying to remind us that in our, our standing with God, whether God in the Old Testament, Jesus in the New Testament here, that we are seconds. And that those who find more in life, more in their relationship with God, always have that priority fixed. They know that. They figured that out. Now, that phrase, I am second, is not a new thing. If you've been around the last 12 years or so, uh, there's been an organization of Texas that has put out some really cool videos of testimonies of famous people. And I'm going to catch some of your attention right now. Uh, Chip and Joanna Gaines have done a I am second video just testifying about how their faith makes a difference in their life. And so some of you are going to rush home right now and you're, forget everything else. Chip and Joanna did I am second video, so I have to watch that, right? Um, and some of you don't know who that is, and that's okay. That's a good thing. And so um, Paul Goldschmidt, some of you Cardinals fans maybe know his name, right? Um, and so he did one. The, the rock, man, rock band Korn, the guy, Korn, the guy, singer from that guy, he did one of those videos a long time ago. And so over the last 12 years or so, a number of these videos from people who have, who have found Jesus in their life, and they just share their testimony about what it means for, yes, they are rich and famous, and they are, they're well-known, and, and they could use that to be first in their life. But they're making the decision to say, no, I am second to Jesus, who is first in my life. And so knowing that idea, knowing my place in the universe is so key. Um, several years ago, um, Rick Warren came out with his little book, his big book, I should say. I'm going to drop papers all over the place here today, sorry. His little book, uh, The Purpose Driven Life, right? Remember this book? Many of you have read this or at least seen it. Um, um, can you remember the first four words of the book? Anybody can quote that? What's the first four book words of this book? Remember, remember? You get a bonus points if you can quote it. Right? Okay, I'll read it to you. It's not about you. All right? Say that with me. It's not about you. All right? That's how he begins this best-selling book. Um, it just begins with this idea. It's not about you. And that's always what Scripture is trying to remind us. Not because God doesn't love us, care about us, but God is always trying to remind us of our place in the universe. It's not about you. Um, and so understanding that and appreciating that and seeing that worked out in our lives is the beginning place of being a good disciple of Jesus. I want to show you a couple examples in Scripture. Um, these are not all on the screen, so if you do have a Bible, I want to open, invite you to open up just really quickly here. I'm going to go really quickly here because I've already talked way too long So um, on these things that I really wasn't going to talk long about. Um, Exodus chapter 3. I want you to just listen to the calling of Moses in, um, in that story. Exodus chapter 3. It's the story where Moses is out. He's been a shepherd for 40 years. He had this first 40 years of his life growing up in Egypt. He was rich, famous, had everything going for him. In a moment of anger, he ends the life of a... Um, 
Egyptian man, uh, Egyptian master who is uh, beating a Hebrew slave, and that doesn't go well, so he flees into the desert, meets his wife, going, life's going fine, right? Everything's really good for him. Um, he's got this nice, quiet shepherd business he's taking care of, wife, kids, all kinds of really good things. But as he's out one day, you read these words in Exodus chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. It says, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. And so Moses thought, as many of us would, I'm going to go check this out. I'm going to go over and see this strange sight, why the bush isn't burning up. And when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. All right, so here we have this contrast, right? There's God in the bush. Moses presents himself before God. And what happens in the next chapter, the rest of this chapter um, is that God is helping Moses to align himself properly with his place in the universe. That God is reminding him, I am God, you are not, and so let's get busy and get some things done that I want to accomplish in the world. It goes on to say, don't come any closer. God said, take off your sandals for the place you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. So Moses is beginning to understand his place in the universe, right? He understands, oh man, I'm dealing with someone holy. I'm dealing with someone above me. And the Lord said to him, verse 7, um, and this may be actually beyond, no, it's not yet. I do have part of this on it, but not yet. He says, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of the slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So God has something he needs done in the world, right? My people are, are slaves, and I need them set free. If you skip down to verse 10, so now go. I am sending you, Moses, to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, and this is where he's wrestling with this whole idea. He's wrestling with his place in the universe. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Now, Moses sounds humble. He sounds like he's just, oh, I'm not worthy of this. But as you keep reading, what you find is that Moses doesn't want to follow Moses wants to be in control of this situation. And so he keeps presenting all these reasons why I don't want to go. I don't want to do that. That's not on my list of bucket list things I want to do before I leave this world is go back to Egypt. That was a terrible ending to my time there 40 years ago. And so he's wrestling with following. <clears throat> Excuse me. He's wrestling with following. And so God then says to him down in verse 14, this little phrase I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Um, several years ago, Louis Giglio did a great little sermon. You can probably find it on the internet if you want to look it up and hear a good sermon today. Uh, his little sermon was called, I am not, but I am. It was something like that. That little phrase. He played with that idea because throughout the next few verses, God uses this description, this all-encompassing, everything that God is, that I am a reference title for God as he describes himself. He says, I am. What is God? He's, I am. I'm everything. I'm, I'm all. And yet Moses knows that he's not. So Moses comes face to face with the fact that I am not, but God is. And so that defines the relationship between God and between Moses and how this works, right? Moses is not 
co-partners with God. God is in charge because he is. He's everything. And then there's, there's Moses. And Moses needs to find his place in the universe because it's not about him. And so Moses doesn't get to define the terms. He doesn't get to say, this is what I'm, we're going to do. This is what we're not going to do. Let's write this out in a contract before we start this. No, God just says, no, I am God. You are you. Are, you, are you. There's value in you. I want you to partner with me. But always understand, I am God and you are not. And so he needs to define this whole idea of I am second. There's a second experience, a New Testament example in Acts chapter 9. So there's Moses in the Old Testament. I think the, the story of, of Paul, or Saul, became Paul, meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. Um, I think these verses may be on the screen. Just get the context that Saul has been this um, angry, violent, religious man, but a very angry, violent man persecuting the church, throwing people in prison, uh, being responsible for the ending of people's lives, a lot of destruction, pain, chaos, and a lot of Christians' lives. But as he is nearing Damascus, as he's going there to persecute more Christians, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And then he asked the question, who are you, Lord? And Paul is trying to wrestle with this whole idea. For all these years, he's been persecuting the church, did not believe Jesus was much of anyone to be thought about. He's just someone to be persecuted and, and, and dismissed. But all of a sudden, he's face to face with Jesus, and he has to wrestle with the question of who are you, Lord? And the word Lord is, some people make the case that that's, that's a significant word, right? Paul has never called Jesus Lord before. Um, and so he asked the question, who are you, Lord? And Jesus responds, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And, and the story continues where Paul's world gets completely up, turned upside down. Everything he used to work against, everything he persecuted, now he builds up and he preaches for. And his life changes dramatically because Paul recognized his place in the universe. So as you and I think about, well, how do I process this whole being thing? Uh, how do I learn to be uh, a disciple? It's got to start with this idea that I am second, uh, that God is God and I am not. And the, the more I recognize that, the more I realize that and embrace that idea. Every day I wake up, God, I am not in charge of much today. Um, I'm going to, I entrust myself to you. You are God I am not. I want to follow you today. And that following really begins with that idea that I, I am second uh, to the one who rules over my life, and that is the Lord. And so that's the idea of, of I am second. But I showed you another phrase as well, that I am surrounded, because sometimes... I don't know, I was always a skinny, scrawny kid. If you saw the Super Bowl commercial last week with that uh, Aquaman, whatever his name is, remember he's a big old buff man, but he comes inside and takes off all of his big muscles and he's this big scrawny kid who sits on the couch? That's me, all right? That's me now, except for this. But everything else is still scrawny and skinny. And that was me. And so um, there were a lot of people throughout my life who reminded me that I'm second to them because I'm physically less than them, right? They could beat me up. Um, they could take my milk money. They could do all that thing. And, and that was just the girls in my class. I don't know what the guys are even worse. And so it was, it was not, a, not a happy existence in my life. And that was not an offense to any of you ladies to come and get beat up by the ladies in the parking lot now. They're you know, just insulted. Uh, but I was always not much. And so, but there can be a level of bullying that, hey, I'm going to put you in your place so I can dominate you. And that is not what being second to the Lord in the Old Testament or to Jesus in the New Testament is about. And that's why I want you to see the second phrase. Because the Lord wants to remind me of my place in the universe, not so he can dominate me and ruin me. He puts me in my place 
because he wants to surround me. He wants to surround me with all that he is. And that when he surrounds me with all that he is, my life begins to take on the elements of more and fulfillment and joy and peace and a level of happiness that is deeper than superficial worldly stuff that I'm seeking. And so the idea that I am second leads to the idea of, well, I'm also surrounded. And I just want to read two verses from 1 Peter chapter 2. Um, and this is a sermon in and of itself, and I actually meant this is actually just getting to the sermon, but I'm not going to do that. We're going to adjust this here. But I just wanted to read these verses, and I just want you to, to picture in your mind, to hear with your heart, that what does it look like to be surrounded by the Lord? Should I fear that, or should I be excited about that? Listen to what Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Um, and as we read through this, uh, I just want you to catch a few of the phrases. I'm going to give you four of them that I'm going to highlight, but uh, there's a lot of stuff in this passage. He has just talked about people who reject God, who, who don't want to let Jesus be first in their life, and so they're still fighting that battle. But he says, now you as Christians, you've, you've identified your place in the universe, and now you're surrounded by the Lord. And this is what that looks like. He says, but you are a chosen Race, that word chosen is important. A royal priesthood. And I just want to say this. It's baseball season, and I just want you to note the word that the Lord, cho the Lord chose. When it says, which team should you root for this baseball season? I'll just let the text speak for itself, okay? Uh, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Now, all the Cardinals fans are glaring at me. Just, it's a joke. It's a joke. Okay. Uh, a royal priesthood, though, right? There's, there's a special priesthood that we're called into. A holy nation. A people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his wonder, marvelous light. He goes on in verse 10 to say this. Next one, if you would. Is there another one? Okay, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You once had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Those two simple verses... Um, I just think that gives us a beautiful picture. Okay, God, yeah, you, you were always trying to bring me to place to help me admit that I'm second to you. But then what does that look like? Well, then God rushes in with all these beautiful things he surrounds us with. And I just want you to, uh, there's a, an article by Rick Ezel years ago uh, that kind of summarized at least four things out of this text that I think are, are worth you seeing and noting um, because most of us spend our, our entire life trying to be something. But I just want you to see that when we submit and surrender to say, okay, I'm going to follow. I'm going to follow you, Jesus. Um, that this is what comes of being surrounded. Number one, you are acceptable. You are acceptable when the Lord surrounds you. I, I, one of the beautiful things of this text is that, that God doesn't dominate me just to make a point that, you know what, you're not acceptable. You're not good enough. You're not good enough for me. That's not what God does. God is always working to put us in that second place because he wants us to know that you are acceptable now. Because you've humbled yourself and, and you see your place and you see who I am, you are now acceptable. And we spend so much time, so much effort in life trying to be accepted by the world around us, by our peers, by our parents, by the people of the world. And yet here God comes to us and says, hey, if you'll just take this place, you're going to always have this circle in me, that you were acceptable. And, and Peter writes this in a day um, when it was a culture of rejection, 
There was a custom in ancient Rome, and this, again, often, we all know rejection, right? Um, we've all been, maybe not all of us, most of us have been on the kickball field or some other field, and we're the last to be picked, and that's never a fun feeling, right? And that's fine, and that's part of this, but, but there's a deeper level that, that Peter is writing this text into. Um, there was just a normal tradition that whenever a child was born, that child was brought to his or her father, and it was placed at the feet of the father, and the father made a decision. He either stood and embraced the child, which means I accept this child, he can stay, or he or she can stay, or he could stand and he would turn his back and he'd walk away and that child was not accepted in that family. And that child would be oftentimes be left out in the elements uh, where it could either be devoured, it would die from the elements, or um, just as bad, it could be uh, uh, picked up by uh, um, by. Sex trade, slave trade, it would be put into a very difficult life because of a father's rejection. And so Peter's writing into a culture that understands when he says, hey, you are, you are an acceptable people. You are chosen. The image in their mind is a father who, who sees their child and who does not turn his back away, but who stands and embraces. That's the image. And that's the image that some of us need to replay in our mind on a regular basis when we're struggling with maybe parental issues for our past or things in our life right now. Boy, God is a God who, because of what Christ has done for us in grace and mercy, we are acceptable to him. Number two, you are valuable. Uh, you are valuable. Um, how do you determine the value of something? Um, just lots of different ways, but probably the biggest couple are um, maybe who owns it and who made it. And I think if I was to sign this baseball and say, hey, I'll sell this baseball to you for 100 bucks because it's got my autograph on it, um, I don't think many of you would probably buy it. I don't think there would be a long line of bidding, uh, of bidders at that. But if I was to say, hey, um, uh, I'll make the Cardinals fans happy. Albert Pujols signed this baseball, or Lou Brock signed this baseball. Uh, there would be a long line of people. I'll sell it to you for 100 bucks. Everybody would be anxious to do something like that. Because the value of something, because someone else owned it, they signed it, they put their stamp on it, makes it valuable. And so you and I don't find our value in Christ because we are inherently, we have inherent worth. But our value to God um, as sinful people does not come from people who have their act all together, who are perfect, don't mess up. We all know that. I hope if you're here today, you probably know that, hey, I mess up quite frequently in my life and I desperately need what the Lord has to offer me. And so the value in my life comes because I am made by the Lord. Remember Ephesians chapter two, we are his workmanship. It's his, hand, his fingerprints, his handiwork in our life. Um, and also the value of someone being willing to pay a great price for us, right? Um, um, Jesus is willing to pay the ultimate price to pay and redeem our salvation. And so our value comes from that. And so you are valuable. Uh, number three, uh, jot this down, you are capable. That little royal priesthood, and I made the royals joke, but forget that for now. Uh, the royal priesthood thing, man, what an image that is, right? That we as followers, we as disciples are called into, invited into being this royal priesthood. Now a priest, um, the Latin word for priest is uh, the word, it's a similar word for bridge, that they build a bridge between two worlds, that a priest builds a, a, a bridge between God and the world in which he or she lives. And so you and I are called not just to a priesthood, but to a royal priesthood, singing, serving our king, serving the king of kings, that we exist in this world and that, that um, we live in, in this dual way of, okay, I know the Lord and I want to know him and I want to hear him, listen to him, serve him, but then I also want to be a representative of that king to the world around me 
being a bridge that helps them be able to connect, that, that the world around me and my God be able to connect. And so we are called to be a royal priesthood that God believes because of his work in us that we are capable because of what he is doing and shaping in our life that we are capable. And number four, you are forgivable. You are forgivable. The passage ends with that little beautiful little words that once you had not received mercy, but now you have. Now you have. That God showed you mercy, undeserved mercy, oftentimes unreceived in other parts of our lives, in other world, parts of our world. Um, but Christ gives us mercy, a mercy that wipes out sin, a, wor- a mercy that forgives us and our sins We are no longer accountable for them because of what Christ has done. They are wiped away. They are gone. They are erased. We are treated as if they never existed. That is beautiful, beautiful mercy. And you are forgivable. And probably some of us here today need to hear that um, because shame walks with us in our life. Um, And this is another sermon in and of itself, but I love this question um, that someone posed. If I was to come to you, and this might be a helpful exercise for you to do this week, if I was to come to you and ask you to, to list what are the 10 most painful memories of your life? What are the 10 most painful memories of your life? I bet all of them, most of them at least, would have an element of shame to them. Times when you failed, times when someone rejected you because of something in your life, and um, that shame, that just shame that says you are defective, you are dirty, you are unwanted, you are weak, you are insignificant, you are invisible, you are empty. Um, just that shame walks with us. But I love the fact that as Peter writes those words, what does it mean to be surrounded by the Lord? It means that you are forgivable, you are valuable, uh, you are capable, he can use you, um, and you are entered in, surrounded by something beautiful and good. And so he invites you into that. And so God calls us to be So if I'm going to be called by God, Moses had to wrestle with that. Paul had to wrestle with that. And Paul's story, we keep reading, Paul's just brought to his knees for three days. He just prays and he fasts and he's broken and he's repentant and he just knows that, God, I I have lived everything up to this day has been wrong. And now I've seen Jesus and he's this beautiful thing. And he meets a guy by the name of Ananias and his, uh, his life is put back together. He's baptized into the Lord and he begins this life of learning and growing and serving and this calling begins to overflow out of who he is now. And his name changes even. He was Saul, now he is Paul, the preacher, the church planter, the apostle. He is now equipped and ready to be used. And so maybe today as we think about the word be, I'll put this last one up here. Just look at this word be with me one more time. Here's your assignment. Uh, One more. It starts with a key yes. So what's the yes? The yes is to say, okay, I will follow. Okay? As you look at that little circle, it's not just a little sunshine to make you feel pretty on a gloomy day. The little arms out there, here's your assignment. What does it mean to be a disciple? To be a disciple means I am looking to my master. I am a learner from a master. I am trying to imitate my master. And so perhaps it would be a good, helpful thing. Pick your gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Mark's the shortest one if you're looking for the easy way out. But they're all writs of stories of telling you who Jesus is, what Jesus was like, what Jesus did, um, how Jesus loved people, all the things he did. It would just be a helpful thing for you to begin to say, okay, um, make, get out a little piece of paper. Uh, just begin to jot down that Jesus was... And just begin to write down things that Jesus was. And as you begin to learn from him, 
and begin to see what he's doing and, and how he lived and say, man, that's who I want to be. You see, that calling in your life comes as that grows in your life, as the fullness of Jesus grows more and more into who I am, as I love more like he loved, or I forgive like he forgave, or I speak truth like he spoke. All, whatever traits, you're going to find dozens of them, probably more than the little, uh, little rays of sunshine coming out of that circle. Just begin to go around and make a list of things. This is who Jesus was. And this is, with God's help, who I need to grow into being because I want to be a disciple. And as the fullness of Jesus grows in me, that calling is found in our core identity, it shapes who I am, that I am more and more like Jesus, and that the overflow of that, the overflow out of that in my life is, is calling. It's, you, you see these Jesus things just overflow. You, you think like Jesus. You respond like Jesus. You, you live a little bit more like Jesus in your life. And so it begins with that key word of yes. Yes, Lord, I will follow you. Yes, Lord, I will take that second position. I will be your follower. Yes, Lord, I will enjoy the blessing of being surrounded by you and your grace in my life. I will say yes to you. And so Paul's story was one of being broken as he found Christ to be right and he was wrong. He saw that Jesus was Lord the repentance in his life, he was baptized, and the, the walking and the learning and the growing and the obeying that just grew out of his life. Maybe that story needs to be your story today. Um, and maybe that needs to be the decision that you say yes to today, that yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get on that journey. I'm gonna get on that path so that I can follow and be a disciple as well.